You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the vast valley north of Los Angeles, on a street of abandoned warehouses, behind a wall of corrugated metal topped with barbed wire, beyond an unused machine shop in an unmarked prefab office building, inside a tiny bathroom with a hollow core door, our first hero begins to tremble as she steps into a strange pair of pants. These pants are enormous, inches thick, visibly stiff, made of a fabric coarse and gray, and when she grips the sink for balance, letting them fall, they relax only slightly, a pair of heavy phantom legs leaning against her own. A matching jacket lies felled on the floor like some hunted thing, arms pinned beneath its own weight. On the seat of the closed toilet, an open equipment bag bears a padded red helmet, its dark metal face cage regarding the water-stained ceiling, and on the floor beside it a clipboard, McClellan's Security Services, Contingency Stress Inoculation Training, Dana Bowman, years one through six, with colored graph lines for heart rate and test durations descending. This woman keeps her head bowed, focusing resolutely on the shining silver drain stop at the bottom of the sink. She's able to still herself this way, but over the course of a long minute, the short hair at the back of her neck begins to darken, the skin to shine, and at last a bead forms and slides down to disappear into the rolled cotton edge of her tank. She cranks the sink water on. She flips a wall switch, setting an old ceiling fan rattling. Finally, she straightens and pulls the pants up tall, fitting her arms through the ragged straps of the suspenders in front of the mirror. Tall and lean, short dark hair, eyes a clear green, thin white line of a scar above her upper lip. This is Dana. Mackenzie Bezos is the author of the novel The Testing of Luther Albright. Her new novel is Traps. Thank you for joining me, Mackenzie. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Mackenzie, this is such a wonderful novel, and the way it works, for me at least, it's kind of a mystery. We have, we meet four people. We see them unfold over three days. But the way you write is so interesting. It, you're the Phil Spector of literature. <laughs> you layer these voices. You layer four voices. It's like the Supremes, a Supreme single. You layer four voices. You add a ton of reverb, and you... Give us this wall of story. And I think that's a really interesting feel for this novel. It's all in the narrative voice. So i like you to talk a little bit about creating this voice that has just a smidgen of distance on it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was interesting when I... I'm always curious. I love hearing other writers talk about where their stories come from because for me the process is always really mysterious. This one came to me with just an image of each of the four characters from the beginning of the book. So there was Dana stepping into this suit, for example. And I didn't really know what to make of the situations that I saw the characters in, but I knew that they really interested me. And I felt really strongly that they all belonged in the same book. And I didn't know how their paths might cross. And for some reason, that voice, which is so different from my first book, that more distant uh, third-person narration, 
was there from the start as well. It just seemed right for the book. And in fact, I wrote the entire thing in third objective first. Just, you know, there's not a lot of interior thought in this book, especially when compared to my first one. But there was even less on my first draft. It helped me somehow to uncover their stories and discover what was going on and what they had in common to follow them around more like a camera than an omniscient narrator that could get in their heads. One of the things I love about this novel is the sense of mystery that you create from the very beginning. We get the feel that we're reading a mystery with no body, no crime, and in a sense, no clues. And it's a mystery of character revelation. And I'm wondering if you experience those same revelations that we do as readers. Absolutely. I mean, it was really, you know, at the very beginning, it did feel like that to me. I saw each of the characters in these situations. Vivian was in an attic listening to her baby's cry. Jessica was in her kitchen listening to her cell phone ring. And it was very clear that it was incredibly unnerving to her. And Lynn was wandering around among these dogs calling out a girl's name. And I didn't I I did not know what was going to happen or or why they were doing what they were doing. And so the process of uncovering that fairly quickly, interestingly, I I started to see the end of the book. And so figuring out what would happen in between that would take the characters between these two points was was a big part of the, the mystery and the fun of plotting the book. I had a tremendously good time writing this book. And I think it had to do a little bit with that sense of mystery that I really felt, hopefully, along with the, the readers. The fun you had uh, writing this book comes through for us as readers. It's just an absolute blast to read this. One of the things you do is you use a lot of synchronicity and echoes. There's tons of echoes in this book, and they're really fun for readers, as us as readers, to uncover because you can't help but notice even the, the smallest, most insignificant details matter. As you wrote this book, did you like say, okay, have a like a spreadsheet and say, these are the details I want to matter, or did they occur to you as you were writing? They they popped up, and at first, the, in the very first instances of those really small details, I I a little part of my brain, a part of my brain, I'm always trying to suppress when I'm working on a first draft. That editorial part, you know, came in and said. Is, is that just that you're reusing the same detail because you can't think of another one? You know, and then I started to see that this was part of what was stitching together their stories and revealing to me what was common to the experiences of these four women who on the surface would would seem to most people to be really different, you know, vastly different ages, young and old and famous and almost completely alone and forgotten. Um, the contrast is really high and their jobs are all very different and their approaches to life are really different. But what they're going through over these four days, I feel, is is very common and very human, common to all people. And that's one of the things that I loved about this story and that really compelled me about these characters is the way they allowed me to explore. That's Part of the synchronicity in the story has to do with plot, but part of it has to do just with human experience. That's one of the things I like so much about this book was the way that you, in a, such a compressed and easily read and joyous to read uh, piece of writing, evoked a lifetime of choices we all make. Yes. And I, I think... You know, when I first started, like I said, I didn't know what was knitting these four characters together. I just felt like they were were part of the same book. And as happened with my first novel, 
as I sort of followed the path of my interest in these early images, I saw over time that what was bringing them all together and compelling me to write the story had to do with an idea that, you know, had been preoccupying me for a while, this idea that sometimes in life, the things that we find most difficult, whether they're our own personal limitations or our mistakes or just tragic accidents that happen to us in life that we have no control over, they may end up being part of the fabric of things that later we, would, we wouldn't give up for anything. And so that there's a reason to be grateful for those things that for a long time we were um, wishing we could escape. And the other thing that really knit these stories together besides that idea for me was this, this to me, really beautiful idea that without intention or recognition, we're playing important roles in the lives of other people. It's, it's accidental, but it doesn't feel really, it doesn't, it feels important, not incidental. And it's, um, and, and the synchronicity of that, the sort of beautiful view of, of the pattern of connection among strangers or casually related people that we'd see if we were granted a moment of omniscience. That was sort of the that was, for me, one of the beautiful revelations of the of the story and the connection among all these characters. Well, what's so nice about this is it gives us a, a great vision of the choices we make, their consequences, the unintended consequences, and how, how all that tangles together in a way that, while we experience it, seems meaningless and chaotic and often unpleasant, but in the long run proves to be uh, as you say, providential. And yes. I think that's a fabulous uh, thing to be able to accomplish in such a small scope. Ah, oh, thank you. Now, a- as you did this, you have all sorts of wonderful literary devices, and you cap- and you use these things to capture the way people really act. And one of my favorite are, is a kind of dialogue you ha- have that occurs again and again. It's like dueling monologues <laughs> of people who are talking past one another. One of them's confessing. The other one just really doesn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really interesting technique because this is the kind of conversation lots of people have and don't – neither one of them really realizes they're having that kind of conversation. Yes. I I feel like that happens so much in – in all kinds of relationships, whether it's just casual conversations with people we barely know or intimate com- conversations with people that we know very well, is that kind of what we're trying to say or even what we believe we're trying to say is often not what we're trying to say at all. And that, and our own lack of awareness of it is is sometimes the, the most interesting part. And even on reflection, I think sometimes people have trouble teasing apart what what's really going on in their own conversations. And so trying to take a snapshot of that and and explore it through the characters is really fun for me. As you wrote this, did you find you had to, like, at times, because you're close to the characters, you you we feel like when you're with the characters, you're totally with the characters, but you as a writer must have been, like, living these interior lives. Did you find that you had to, like, okay, I've got to ratchet back the camera a quarter of an inch, a half an inch, to just throw this into a kind of this fantastic shadow that you have that kind of goes through the whole book, this voice of you, Mackenzie, telling us the story. This is Dana. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some reason, that step closer and step back sort of happened really organically. And I think it must have to do with the times in the story that it's it's better to have that little bit of distance. But it wasn't that conscious. It would just sort of come out as I, as I was writing. I would either be a little bit closer and creep into their heads. But like I said, in the first draft, it was almost all more more distant. But those bits that you're referring to where you actually where I actually back up far enough to to say what we as as readers or viewers can see or say this is Dana. That happens in not that many places in the book and and the moments just popped up organically as I was writing. These four characters all have really different lives and different occupations. When they came to you as characters, did you all of a sudden say, okay, I have this character doing this, this character doing that, this character doing that. Now I have to go back and kind of research because when you write, it feels very natural. We feel the full funnel of life channeled into each of the four different, like this is a three-day part of their lives. Yes. And um, and there was some research involved for these characters. And I have to say that was part of the fun of the book. I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Some of it I did up front before I had written very much. Other things I was able to do along the way. And I I, I love that aspect of it. The characters gave me so much in, in both in terms of um, emotions to explore they all, and jobs to research and places that they lived. It was The diversity was really engaging. Uh, the other uh, place I'm wondering if you did any research is in Every Writer's Best Friend, the dsm four for the kind of psychological profiles of these people because they're different people. They're not – it's not – this isn't the same character replicated and kind of twined back and forth. These are very different people who have different mindsets and each of their approaches is pretty successful within their lives so they don't always realize this. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about creating these different psychological profiles and then combining that with the experience of the research of you know their jobs and their lives. Yeah, that um, that happened fairly organically too. But I think it must come from an interest I have in that, in different personality types and approaches to life, preferences that we all have. That you can really see the more people you know and get close to is just innate. Especially once if you have children, you get to see that they have it right from the start, really early on. And I love that that there are so many approaches to different kinds of problems and being able to see. I think it was essential to the idea of the book, and so I can see why it happened that way, that they each were personality-wise so different, because seeing that as you go through experiences like the ones that they have, that they there is something common to all those experiences, despite their surface contrasts, their personality contrasts, their circumstance contrasts, their very different jobs, there really is that core of commonality. You do places really well in this book. I've lived in L.A. many years, and I don't think I've ever read quite as accurate and uh, description of L.A. You just evoke how L.A. always felt to me, which is somewhere between urban and suburban, somewhere between rough and smooth. I think you do a great job with that. Did you spend a lot of time in L.A.? Or Yeah, I have spent a fair amount of time, not a huge amount of time in L.A., but I love L.A. And, uh, and I love the differences of, you know, I lived for a while in New York, too. So the contrast between that and L.A. and Seattle. Um, so I'm fairly familiar with L.A. geography and, um, and, and life there. It helped. One of the things, too, I, I loved your 
you did this, um, I guess this is, I guess, part of the proximity thing you do. There's one point where we have two characters who are talking about the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a somewhat of, it seems like a sideline conversation. And then you come and you describe people who are approaching Las Vegas. And you describe the emerald ring yeah. of the golf courses. And I just think, Emerald City. It's the perfect <laughs> description of, of Las Vegas. Was that did that just stumble onto that? It, it did. It really did. I, you know, um, when I when uh, the conversation, the initial conversation about the Wizard of Oz, and that it was features sort of in the background of one scene happened. Um, yeah, I'm again. I'm always really interested in writing process and hearing about how other writers do it. But seeing that when I got. It was almost as if it was setting me up to write that description as she drove into Las Vegas. I don't know how that works, but it sure is a lot of fun. Now, one thing that I really love about this is uh, we have a character who's an actress. And I think I'm wondering if you've ever done acting yourself. No. And I would be, I would be a terrible actress. And it's um, I mean, the part of acting that I can relate to is the is the character development. Mm-hmm. But the actual execution is something that, you know, I feel capable of doing on the page, but not with my voice. It, it, it gets me into trouble a little bit when I try to do a reading aloud of dialogue. I always feel a little disappointed by, uh, by my ability to kind of capture the sounds of the characters and um, and the personality of the characters in my voice, but but in the in the dialogue itself, I can I can do it. It seems to me that you would be a great actress because you really do have this. And it's interesting that uh, you your character talks about it uh, um, character acting. Yes, and I think that this is uh, an interesting, a really interesting observation because I know a lot of writers have told me that they felt. Like they have something akin with actors. Yes, and I to- and I I definitely feel that, and it helped me in writing that those parts of Jessica's interior uh, thoughts. But like I said, it's something that I, f- I feel like the kinship, the similarity, is you know breaks down when it comes to actually interacting with anybody or being watched at all. You know, it's something I can do at my desk when there's nobody there, but not with any with, not with an audience. Comes out through the tips of your fingers. Exactly. <laughs> There's a, a great observation in here about um, the the internal voices that we sometimes hear that cause us to doubt. And this is uh, something that uh, Jessica's thinking about, how she's constantly questioning herself and, you know, second-guessing herself and undercutting herself. And I think this is a really universal trait that we all do this. Yes. And one of the things I think that it's really nice the way that you have the character do it and she kind of does it for the other characters who do it to greater or lesser degrees yes yeah you get to see a little bit more of of that process with her because she's maybe more more conscious of it and explores it she spends a lot of time in that space and and for her that's one of the things that she's struggling with and and needing to overcome is realizing how she can do do less of that in her life and how much of her relationships are uh, her difficulties in relationships are a reflection of that which i think is common for a lot of people that the the judgment that they feel from others is actually just a projection of their own judgments of themselves we have a, a character who runs a dog rescue ranch and i i love what you do with dogs throughout this book i think it's really it's charming and it seems right on 
and kind of beautiful in, in different ways. So I'd like you to talk about your relationships with dogs and how those inform the writing of the books about the dogs and how the different characters deal with the dogs because this is something that's real and our relationships with dogs are almost sometimes as complicated as our relationships with people. I think that's true. I think it actually gets at, at what I was talking about, you know, although you don't see very much a huge amount of Jessica's relationship with the dog in this book. You see it more in the other characters. This thing that she she does where she projects her judgment of herself onto other people. I think as something that we do in our relationships with animals very much. You know, we work out a lot of the kinds of difficulties we have with people in our relationships with pets, too. And so one of the things that intrigued me when I started to notice that dogs were going to be a feature in each of the women's stories, I thought, oh, a part of that little <laughs> that little uh, early editorial part of my brain that I should suppress as much as possible in the first draft would come in and say, you know, what are the dogs to each of these characters? I was sort of expecting it to be common to all four, that dogs might represent something or play a, ro a similar role in each of their stories. And really, I found that at different points in the book, dogs were different things to each of them. There's the loyalty that dogs have, that there's the, there's the joy that they bring to their experiences, this, the simplicity, the enviable simplicity that Jessica craves. But there's also the chaos, our desire to control the behavior of others, and, and that we can't really, with pets, even though you can in certain, certain ways, the sort of more chaotic aspects of an animal. All of those things help the characters sort of work through and mirror what they're going through in their, in their experiences with people. This book is so beautifully written and tightly controlled. It doesn't feel controlled when we read it. It kind of feels like life. But as we get to the end, you just, you're, as a reader, you just go, oh my God, that, there's not a word wasted in this book. Thank a, you. As, as a writer, did this happen uh, in the first draft? <laughs> No, no. Um, Was there an 800-page novel no, around this? No, 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 I wouldn't say that. Um, one of the things probably that made me enjoy this book more than writing my first book is that I was able to learn a little bit about my own process from my first book and, and do it differently this time. And one of the things that I tinkered with was trying to shorten the duration that I spent in the first draft phase because it's not a stage of writing that I enjoy very much. For me, the, I just take so much pleasure from the moment that there are at least 12 or so things that feel too real to change in a book. And then those constraints are things that I have to make everything else work around. And going back and restructuring a book and figuring out what to cut and what to add in order to make now I know what the story, I know what happened to these four women. I know where they start and I know where they end. And now how can I how can I tell the best version of that story and go and rearrange things? So there's a lot of redrafting that I do. But fortunately, there there wasn't it was actually a little bit shorter than this in the first draft phase, partly because I did that experiment with third objective where I left out all the interior thoughts so I could just see what these women did and then try to extract from that what they must have been going through. So I had that extra layer to add uh, in the second draft phase. That's such an interesting experiment. Did you? Is that something you think you might try again? I think it, I might. It was really fun I, w following them around in that way. I mean, there were there were parts where it was it was difficult to sort of suppress, and I could tell. I know I'm going to come back to this point and add 
some, but forcing myself to almost see the movie of the book first so that I could see what are the actions that would reveal to other people, the, the people in their lives, especially because they were going to interact with each other later on. And I wanted to be able to see how they would be able to see each other. What are they going to be able to see of these other women? And what is the exterior view we get of their um, emotional struggles? So... Did you write a screenplay version of this, or have you yet? No, no, I haven't. It's, I mean, it would be so fun. I love these characters so much. It's one of the I miss them already, and so it would be very fun for me to see a fantastic movie of this book. But I don't. I have never written a screenplay before, so that would be a whole new terrain for me. Well, I I heartily recommend it. It's, it sounds good. <laughs> now, one thing that's interesting about this book. It's a part of this book is about the power and the problems of confession. So because we have confession as some characters just try to spill out their lives to others, there's actually kind of a formal confession in here. So I'd like you to talk about confession as a means of characterization. And it's a devious means because when somebody confesses to something, they're really never confessing to everything. That's true. That's true. And I think that's one of the challenges. I think that, you know, you can see that in Jessica's struggles early on to communicate with her husband about why she's even going to tackle the things that she tackles over these three days. Is uh, she doesn't... That's a great moment, by the way. I love that. When she finally figured out and explained it to him, that was just <laughs> one of those character moments you go, Oh, wow. Oh, thank you. But I think, but what made the, you know, I, I, as I was trying to write it, what made it real for me and um, what seemed true about it is that she has, you know, three or four theories about why she might be going. And I, I think oftentimes we would love to confess what's going on inside us, but it's hard to, uh, it's hard to know which moments we're being honest with ourselves and which moments we're fooling ourselves. Um, and which which parts are going to be lasting feelings about the past or the future and which are sort of more fleeting. So I think confessing to ourselves is a sort of necessary precursor to confessing to anybody else, and it's the hardest part of the job. You know, what? when you were just talking, what you reminded me of is I when I talked with the Dr. Michael Gazaniga, he's the guy who discovered, as a grad student, as it were, the difference between left and right brains. Um, he described that most of us think of ourselves the way we, we operate our minds as they're being kind of like in the men in black, the little, remember the little guy who's driving the big body? Yes. We always think that there's kind of like a little homunculus <laughs> at the center of us driving us around. Yes. But that's not the way it is. What he says is that it's like there's dozens of rings kind of running around, spinning in our brain, and a different ring spins up to the surface, and that runs us, and then another one runs us, then another one runs us. Yes. And that's the way your why I think your book comes across as so real-seeming, because you manage to capture these rings and the way they intersect with the coincidences, and I think that's maybe why the coincidence aspect of the book seems so important and compelling. Yeah, I've, I, for me, the coincidence aspect of the book was a really fun one to try to figure out how, how to make work and to explore. Because I do think of that kind, I call it somewhat mystical, but I do think that kind of synchronicity in life is, is a huge and interesting force that you know we'll probably never understand. But it's certainly evident in everybody's life if you look closely. Well, I think that's... Uh in a sense, because we're all telling ourselves the story of our lives. And 
whether though we experience that story chaotically, we organize it like every other story we ever wrote. So we're yes. all trying to write ourselves our own kind of version of Romeo and Juliet or, yes. or Hamlet if you're a, of a more unfortunate uh, yes. time trend of mine. <laughs> well, it's, and it's a useful thing to do. I mean, I think that is a big part of spirituality, too, is that, um, that humans love um, symbols and connections and can get a tremendous amount of energy and motivation and comfort from, um, from uh, thinking about those uh, those symbols and um, and then applying them to their, both their past and uh, to the future that they want to create for themselves. So, well, as a reader too, um, as we pick this apart, it feels like a mystery. I mean, it is like a really like a page turning, toe tapping mystery. So, what the hell is going to happen, and why we're hearing about these people? So, all these things we pick out as clues, and that as a reading pleasure, that's really fun. Did you kind of go back and like have a a spreadsheet with like, you know, a little gra- histograph of, okay, bing, 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 I need to bring something else in. Definitely. I mean, that's a, and that's a fun layer too, is to go back and say, all right, now that I know all the places that these things are going to happen, you know, what will make, what will make people notice it and have that experience that I so love in a book where something feels both surprising and completely inevitable. You know, your mind kind of flows backwards quickly and and traces the all the um, bits of evidence that you saw along the way that you didn't know were going to be part of this amazing moment. And so it's fun to try to assemble that in a way that doesn't tip you off to what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, well, and what's interesting is that you do this in a variety of ways. You'll have images and actual physical things that recur, but you'll also have parallel situations a dog with puppies, and then maybe somebody with babies. So you, there's these kind of different situations. Uh, and I'd like you to talk about, did you, as a writer, think, okay, I'm going to have the things actually in the frame layer and the relationships that are similar layer and the this, that, or that layer? No. And I would say, I mean, and and um, for the earlier part of the question, too, I should point out that, like, I would say a good 80% of it's completely organic. And then once I see, you know, that these things happened and these surprises come along and then there's an opportunity created to go back and kind of tune the writing more precisely and bring some things up to the surface and maybe plant a few seeds here and there. But I think if I had been, at least for the kind of writer that I am and the process that I have, if I had planned it out ahead of time, and I usually do when that little editor comes in early on the first draft, so many times I'll sit down and say, maybe this is the time for an outline and I'll stop and I'll try. But if I try too soon, it, it's never an outline that gets used. Later on, it's very helpful for me to do a kind of big spreadsheet and notice all the connections, something usually I scrawl in multiple pieces of paper and lots of little connecting lines and arrows. But but if I do that early on and plan it, then those moments aren't so surprising uh, because I think I think it helps if they surprise me as a, as a writer, too. I would imagine so. I mean, that's one of the things. Now, in this book, in a sense, not much happens, but a lot happens. It's all, and this is a a book of plotting by character revelation, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really, it's a a tough road to hoe, but you do it so well. It's like, it's a stunning page turner, as they would say in the the weeklies. Um, So I'd like you to talk about um, crafting these different layers of character revelation and pacing them too, because it's one thing to pace a 
say, a, a crime mystery where you have a crime, you know, a dead body discovered, process of investigation, we like that, then a chase, then a little more investigation, a bigger chase, then the final confrontation. We can see that that kind of plotting is pretty understandable. This kind of plotting is, seems very complicated. Yes. Well, I, you know, like I said, when I when I start out, it's I'm usually just kind of following almost like a trail of breadcrumbs, the the path of these initial images that I have. And then I'll experiment a bit, you know, with writing scenes that seem like they might be related. And some of them are better than others. And I, I, I tend to get led by the path of the, the higher quality writing. This seems true. This seems like it might be part of the story. And then once I have enough of them, you know, maybe a dozen things that I'm sure are part of the story, whether because they were easy to write or they just stand out and are, are good scenes, then is when I'll start to try to plot and organize and realize if I'm going to have this moment, these are all the things that a reader will have to know before this moment happens. And I can't really get it in this part because it, uh, you know, in this early part, because these other things have to happen then. It becomes a complicated puzzle, and it's my favorite kind of puzzle, you know. Uh, there, uh, and often I get that feeling where I, I realize that this little bit of exposition, if, if you will, has to happen in exactly this paragraph. There's no other place in the book that it could happen for these 16 reasons. And I, that kind of compl- complexity um, is, is a lot of fun for me. That, that, that uh, incredibly complicated puzzle that a book becomes, a plot of a book becomes once you know a dozen or so things about um, the lives of the characters is my favorite part. Well, it's so much fun to read. Um, one of the things, there are so many great um, observations about this book. And one of the things that I found when I was reading this book, I would read this book and, and you have this way of describing people's lives at a detailed level, kind of a detailed level. And I walk away from this book, and all of a sudden my little tiny brain starts churning out prose to describe my own life the way you describe it. <laughs> well, I think all of our lives are very dramatic if you look at them, especially if you pick the right the right moment. You know, everybody has these, um, these kind of turning point moments of and oftentimes, it's certainly true for these four women, you don't really know that you're on the verge of, of a really important change in your life because you, because of the synchronicity of those, this, the huge role that other people, strangers, accidents, spiders in your attic, things like that that you don't know are going to happen are going to push you in a certain direction. And so I do feel like there's, it, to think about it, if you examine your own life, there is a huge amount of drama in any, you never know when that huge moment might come. Well, that's one of the interesting aspects of reading a book like this is that the prose voice actually can alter your own thoughts and perceptions of your own life. So it becomes kind of a, a an essential, in a sense, in the best sense, a mind-altering experience. Oh, well, that's so, so nice here. For me, the types of books that I love to read the most are books where at the end, and first of all, that I books. I hope that people reading this book will have a really good time, you know, a fun, suspenseful experience where they can't wait to find out what happens next. That's always a baseline for me in reading a book. Am I, uh, am I just desperate to know what's on the next page? But I love it when I get to the end of a book and 
And it does alter the way I see my life in some small way. Or the characters, one or more of the characters in the book end up taking up space in my brain right next to real people that I know or family members or my own personal experiences so that when I'm faced with my own next life decision, these fictional characters kind of and their and their experiences haunt my decisions the same way my own past does, you know, and, and push me in a certain direction. So I love I love it when there's that resonance and that slight change in perspective after after a book I've really enjoyed. Well, that's that's kind of my take on what's a good book is that you can go back and visit it as if you were mo- that book was your vacation. It's, <laughs> exactly. You know, Philip K. Dick, who was a smart man, called it. He had a book uh, story. We can remember it for you wholesale. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and that's absolutely what the books at their best can do. Right. You can visit it just like your own past. Yeah. It's a postcard from a vacation. Sometimes you might not want to go on, but right. it's <laughs> right. nice, nice, nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I love the the sense of the way the prose in each segment reflects the characters because we have a character who's borderline OCD uh, with things in little plastic bags. I love, I mean, the Ziploc bag, the power of the Ziploc bag is cannot be underestimated, I would say. And I know I'm borderline OCD. So yes. <laughs> I like you to talk about I love about... Ziplocs myself. Yes, I, I use them all the time. They're great cable control if you haul around audio equipment. So I'd like you to talk about creating a pro, the prose from character to character internal voice to internal voice, but yet having this kind of united feel of the godlike Mackenzie who who hovers over all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've never been described that way. I'm going to file that away. So it's interesting because one of the things that um, that experiment I did where, where I wrote the whole thing in third objective first was harder for certain characters than for others, because I think I think it is the case that different people spend People, people spend varying amounts of time in an introspective place. And Jessica, for example, is an incredibly introspective person. She has a lot of thoughts and feelings that she explores and revisits and analyzes. And so to try to write her just through her actions was more difficult. I knew I would end up layering on the revelation that her thoughts could show. But for characters like Lynn and, and Vivian, for example, I think they spend more time in the present moment, thinking about the things that are actually happening, that they're actually seeing. And so I think that by allowing myself to later go back and and appropriately adjust the ratio of interior thought to exterior action that the reader is exposed to in each of their chapters probably is what accounts for the different feeling of of the chapters to to the extent that there is one but then it still has that overlay of the of the common voice it's the hamster wheel uh ratio in yes <laughs> exactly exactly I, everybody has their own little hamster wheel of thought and some of them spin really fast and some <laughs> of them hardly move because they're actually paying attention to what the hell's going on exactly <laughs> exactly uh, this is a a great way too i think of capturing um our, our peculiarly American experience of life. I, I think that this book could only have been written in America in the 20th, 21st century. And yet it's nice that you do this without a lot of uh, 
American hand-waving in terms of American either references to American fiction or the landscape. It's just kind of what happens. Yes. Oh, certainly, you know, Jessica's experience, I think, is a peculiarly American one. And so I think that probably accounts for some of it. But also the two cities. I mean, Las Vegas and, and Los Angeles are such American cities. I'm not sure. I, I haven't really given much thought to others, other cities as compared to that, but those two definitely stand out to me as being very American. Well, too, it's, it's the landscape, which is both open. This is an interesting book because on one hand, it takes place near two big claustrophobic cities, but it has a kind of an open feel to it. And that's an interesting choice you make in terms of the settings uh, for the characters. Well, yeah. And I think it, I think it kind of, it's not something I thought about in advance, but I think it very much mirrors what's going on with the, uh, with the characters that they, there is a, a lot of exploration of of themes of isolation and distance, intentional distancing. And so having those landscapes, the contrast between uh, very close spaces like the one Vivian starts out in and the setting that Lynn lives in is, is kind of helpful to, to explore that. As a writer, one of the things that I think that you do very well is ratchet up the tension. I mean, from the, from the get go of this book, you, you read the first paragraph, and you, it's hard. You're hard pressed not to just turn ahead. But the way it's written is, you don't want it. You know, you can't miss anything, and you don't want to. So I'd like you to talk about pacing and creating tension, because there are things we find out, and then we kind of settle down. So you do give us some arcs within this kind of overall ramping things up till the very end. Yeah, I love I love suspense in any kind of story, and there are so many. Uh, it really doesn't matter whether it's a, a fast-paced action thriller movie or a more interior, lengthy novel. I think there are so many ways to create that kind of anticipation on the part of a reader or a viewer, and I and I love it. It's something that I love to study and think about, and. You can feel it even in a conversation in, in your everyday life. There's that moment where in a friend's anecdote or at a dinner table conversation, somebody's telling a story where everybody sits forward. And a huge part of my brain is always devoted to thinking about you know, why is that? Why are, we all, why, are we all, why are we all sitting forward right now? When you're uh, crafting a book like this, one of the things that makes, makes it seem very real is dialogue. And you have these kind of the dueling monologues, but your other dialogues also um, have this ring of truth. But dialogue we read on the page is never actually what gets, if you were to hold out a hand recorder, that's not what you'd hear. Yes. So I'd like you to talk about making that translation. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think about that a lot when I'm writing dialogue. And it's not as if, it's not a process where I'm kind of imagining a real dialogue and then Editing, editing down to have a fictional dialogue, it is the the way the dialogue comes to me is in this more fictionalized way with the with the extra stuff edited out. But there is something I, I find it a little mysterious too when I read a book and I read a great dialogue. I recognize that it's not exactly the way real dialogue happens, and yet there is something about it that seems incredibly real. And I think it I think what it comes down to has to do with the distinctiveness of the voices and the extent to which a writer captures that 
what is what is essential to dialogue, even a longer, flabbier, more boring real life one without the edits, is the fact that a lot of what is being said is is actually in the body language language or what's being left out or avoided. And so when a writer captures that and makes the voices really distinct from each other, it ends up feeling real and a little bit more exciting than the dialogues that we actually might hear over three times as long in real life. Now, one of the things that's key to this book are families. And you give us a lot of families, a lot of you know families coming together, families falling apart. So, And we see these families forming, and they, they form for us. That's kind of part of the plot, actually. So I'd like you to talk about your vision of the family in this book. Did you think about that as you were crafting this book? No, it's interesting. I I'm, I was sort of puzzled over it, actually, as the story was unfolding, because it was clear to me that family relationships were a huge theme. And then I found it a little puzzling how little of the time actually in the book is spent in kind of a classical family setting where all the family members are having a conversation or a family experience. And yet the stories are very much about family. That was interesting to me. I kept kept expecting to get to a point where there was a scene with Jessica with her family interacting with her children, but it never really came up. It's not part of the story. So a lot of people's exploration of what's important to them about their family relationships happens through other struggles that are happening that because of the life circumstances that propel each of their plots from the beginning often have to do with some kind of accident or something tangential to their lives in each in all four cases a lot of their exploration of these feelings that they have about their own families are happening on the road away from the family itself that's what i thought was so interesting that a book that where family is so core to the concept of the book and the execution of the book and the plot of the book and the characters of the book, it's not really there. Right, right. right. And I found that uh, surprising and, and interesting, too. And maybe it has to do a little bit with the, the point you were raising about the difference between real-life dialogue and actual dialogue is, is that um, I think it maybe allowed me to achieve more faster to have family issues happening in parallel with career issues and perilous life circumstances. So if they can happen all at the same time through the dialogues that they're exploring as they move around and accomplish these things with their tasks in other areas, we can learn more about them in more dimensions faster. It might have just been a subconscious choice that I made in order to be able to have four full arcs in, in a book of this length. Well, I think it also lends things lends it more veracity because we're constantly influenced by our family, though we're not constantly – we don't bring our mother, father, sister, brother, wife, to children <laughs> to work in every other damn place we go. Well, and I can't remember who it was, but I remember one of the many books on writing that I've read that I so enjoyed. Somebody talked about how jobs are a huge part of people's lives, but not many great novels spend a lot, a lot of time in – the workspace. And yet we're very aware of the careers of the writers, of the, of the characters, and, and they influence the plot and the choices that they make and, and all of that. But it's, it's a huge part of your life. But maybe sitting, seeing somebody sit at their desk, unless they have a really thrilling job, is not usually a huge part of the narrative. So tell me, what are you working on now? 
Uh, I'm working on another novel. And it's funny, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the one of the things that I did on this book that helped me a great deal and made made uh, my writing process so much more pleasurable and take much less time. My first book probably took me about 10 years and this one more like two is I tried a little experiment on myself, which was to not talk about the book with anybody, including my husband. Nobody knew what it was about or read any excerpts from it until I was done with the second draft. And this created an incredible amount of excitement for me to get the story down. I had noticed something in my first book, which was that whenever I told somebody what the book was about, it would take away some of that Sort of like uh, when you're at a cocktail party and you're retelling a story that maybe when a personal anecdote from your your ordinary life that when it first happened to you was the best story you ever had and you told it at great length to a spouse or the first friend you saw after it happened. But by three years later, when you're retelling that same anecdote for the 50th time, it's sort of you've got the abbreviated version that doesn't have that same energy. And I noticed that that would happen to me talking about my book. I wanted to save that first telling excitement for the drafting process. And as a result, I had this incredible carrot that made me move faster to finish the book because I wanted so badly. By the time I was halfway through the second draft on this book, these characters were so real to me and so exciting that I could make myself cry just driving around in my car, thinking about them on the way to pick up the kids from school. And so I was desperate to share them with my friends and family. And so all of that is is by way of saying that this new book is, is still in my, I'm going to use that same trick. It's in the top secret. Don't talk about it or you might lose some excitement for getting it down on the page stage. How far are you into it? I'm about halfway through a first draft, thank goodness, because like I said, I really hate the first drafting. So I'm almost to that really juicy phase where I get to move every, everything around and really start to perfect it and, um, and organize the story. Well, we'll look forward to that. And also, I hope to a movie of this because it's tailor-made for a movie. <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much. I've been speaking with Mackenzie Bezos. Her new book is Traps. Thank you for joining me, Mackenzie. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.